press isn't just important to democracy, it is democracy. We're here to hold elected leaders accountable. Yeah. I want to thank all of you out there for joining us. As protests erupted around the globe, George Floyd's six-year-old daughter Gianna proudly declared that her father had changed the world. The collision of two pandemics, one a deadly virus, the other 400 years of racial inequality and injustice, have cracked this country open like an egg. And it does feel like we're standing on the leading edge of a wave of change, an inflection point on the issue of race. I'm Jane Whitney. Joining me on this episode of the Conversations on the Green podcast are Dr. Jason Johnson, professor of politics and journalism at Morgan State University and a political contributor at MSNBC and The Grio. MSNBC anchor and host of AM Joy, Joy Reid, and civil rights activist and legal analyst Maya Wiley. Our town hall was recorded live on June 28, 2020. We are so grateful you're here. I said before we went on the air that you're like the A-team, so people have been very excited and I'm one of them. So thank you so much for being here. Sure. We're gonna talk about the reforms that you think are necessary to try and bring us to a more fair and just uh, multiracial democracy and also the role that people of color are going to play in the election coming up in November. But first I wanna talk about this whole notion of a tipping point and whether a lot of people feel say that it feels different to them, including President Obama. He said he's never seen such a wave of, of feeling in the streets and he really hopes that this is an expression of people reawakening to try and do something to change things. Joy, I'm going to start with you. Do you think this time is different? I think there's something that is fundamentally different, and I want to thank you uh, for having me. Um, and, you know, I covered the 40,000-person marches um, for Eric Garner six years ago in New York. And, you know, this was the first time that we had seen video connected to the term, I can't breathe, to a man saying, I can't breathe, and being wrestled to the ground and choked. Um, and yet... That incident, you know, with a lot of the same, um, you know, details did not result in new legislation or even a change of mind by a majority, particularly of white Americans, uh, about policing. This time with George Floyd, I don't know if it was the eight minute and 46 second endless, you know, torturous duration of that video, um, or if it was the accumulation of stories that went on from, you know, Eric Garner to Tamir Rice to... Breonna Taylor, to Ahmed Aubrey, to Rayshard uh, Brooks, to just on and on and on and on and on, that maybe it was the accumulation, whatever it was, 30, within, a, within 30 days, within a month um, of George Floyd's uh, killing, you, see, uh, you saw legislation um, that was already being worked on in the House of Representatives and voted on in the House of Representatives, even though the United States Senate really did nothing. So I think you can say, yes, there's a tipping point. If you look at the polls, even a majority of white Americans now take the side of Black Lives Matter. That was not the case six years ago with Michael Brown and those other cases. So something has definitely changed. No, the polls overwhelmingly, as you're saying, really have indicated that people say that something has to be done. I want to talk about you going on the air. I think it was about four days after the George Floyd murder. And... Um, 
I get chills thinking about it because you were angry, you were frustrated, you were outraged. You talked about how black people in this country feel like they are being hunted, that they are subhuman. And it was such a powerful, I don't even know what to call it, cry, appeal. And basically you ended it by saying, just stop killing us, just stop killing us. Now, for you personally, you've obviously been on the forefront of this for, for, for years. Personally, how did this feel different for you? Well, you know, you know, unfortunately, it wasn't different. That's the problem, right? You know, it, it wasn't it wasn't different. I covered the Trayvon Martin case, which is the first uh, Black Lives Matter case that I covered as a journalist. Obviously, you know, we heard for years about police brutality. I grew up afraid of police in a majority black suburban town in Denver, where we were very clear that the police were not our friends, right? Um, but, you know, covering Trayvon Martin, who was a kid, you know, he's a little kid that gets killed by somebody acting like they were the police. And then you go on and on and on. And I, you know, covered from the anchor chair, the Tamir Rice story, the Michael Brown story, um, you know, you just keep going and going. It drains you, um, not just as a, a, a human being, as a black American, uh, as a person that's living in this country who can't walk through a store without being followed. Um, you know, even no matter how successful I am, no matter how well dressed I am, who can't get a cab in New York up until a few years ago, it was impossible to get a cab. I was thankful Uber came along because cabs wouldn't pick me up. Um, I remember one time I had my son with me and he'd injured himself playing soccer and he was limping and we couldn't get a cab to even stop. I used to have to get white friends to get me a taxi. I had a white executive producer who didn't believe I couldn't get a cab until he called a cab for me. And as soon as the driver realized it was me that was getting in the car, they sped away. So you live this entire life of being treated as secondary, being treated as less than a citizen, and then to cover the murders of people who are my children's age. You know, my kids were Trayvon's age. Um, you know, I look at somebody like George Floyd, that could be my cousin, that could be my brother, you know, it's, he's my brother's age. And so, you know, personally, it's very difficult to maintain a sense of objectivity covering these cases, because I understand that I could walk out of my house today, be pulled over by a police officer, and I'd be in exactly the same position as George Floyd. I could be in my bed, and, ha and be in the position of Breonna Taylor, because as a black person in this country, we're constantly subject to potential death at the hands of people who are supposed to protect and serve. So yeah, I'm angry. Um, you know, this isn't a case where I can objectively cover what's happening, because this is my life as well. These are my kids' lives. I feel they're much more in jeopardy from police than they are from gangs or terrorism. That's what I fear, is my children being confronted by police and killed by police and there being no recourse. That's my reality. It's all of our reality as black people. So, you know, I think at this point, I think there has to be fundamental change, not just in the individual instances of police killing black people, but in the whole system. You know, my god brother is a retired cop. I know a lot of police officers. I know that they're not all out there trying to kill people, but I know the system is rotten. It's rotten to the core. And unless it's fundamentally changed, black people, brown people, indigenous people will never be safe in America. Everybody's nodding. You can't see that perhaps, but everybody's nodding in agreement. Jason, let me turn to you. 
Do, do you think this time is, is different? Is this a, a seismic shift in, in what we've seen for years or is it just more of the same? Yeah, this is a seismic shift and we're not going back. Um, and, and I hope, depending on the results of this fall, uh, that that's a good thing, that what we're going to is something better. Um, but I wanna, I wanna piggyback off of something that Joy said at, at first, and not just for black people across America, but in particular black people who are tasked with covering these stories and presenting them uh, to everybody across the United States. These stories aren't theoretically personal. They're personal to us. Um, last week was the five-year anniversary of the assassination of Clementa Pinckney and, and eight other people at Mother Emanuel Church. I had a friend text me and remind me, hey, just checking on you today about this. And I was like, what are you talking about? And they're like, it's a five-year anniversary. Clem Pinckney, the pastor there, was one of my oldest friends. There had been so much death, so much coverage of black people being murdered by vigilantes and police over the last month. I had literally forgotten the anniversary of one of my closest friend's deaths. That's how difficult this is for African-Americans who have to report on these stories and write on these stories. Um, many of us are only one or two degrees of separation from hashtags. I'm in Charlotte right now, Charlotte, North Carolina. Jonathan Farrell, who was a young man uh, who survived a car accident, went to someone's house trying to get help. She called the police on him. He was shot 20 something times, is the cousin of one of my best friends. I covered that story as a journalist and then met my friend years later, didn't even realize that was his cousin. So when we're talking about how this is going to change America, it's not just because we're in the middle of a pandemic and we have an election year and people are concerned and they're angry and they're asking for change. It's because after six years of fighting and kicking and screaming since Ferguson, the start of Black Lives Matter movement, African-Americans are finally in some positions, not enough, and we can talk about that too, but in some positions in the press and the media and television and radio to talk about how these issues are affecting people, that they're not theoretical, that the change we're demanding is not just cops being nicer to us and taking a knee in front of a building or playing basketball with a bunch of brown kids, but actually fundamental changes in how this country works. I think that going forward, we see what's happening in Minneapolis. We see them defunding the police, abolishing the police. We see Portland. I can't imagine that the Buffalo Police Department has any credibility in that community anymore after knocking down a 75-year-old man and watching him bleed. That man has not recovered the ability to walk. I think we're going to see serious changes in how policing works in America and how politicians consider themselves to be held accountable more to the public than just the FOP and the other kinds of forces they were concerned about in the past. One of the things that was different this time, and it was, it was just so obvious, was the fact that these protests were multi-generational, yeah. um, they were interracial, there were, let's be honest, there were a lot more white people, there were protests all over the place, there were protests yes. in Lily White, Vidor, Texas. Um, yes. And I, I wonder if, you, yes, does that, does that change things? It does. It does. Um, I, I the, the, one of the most telling images of, of this sort of moment of rebellion is the phalanx of white women in Louisville 
who decided to stand in front of majority black protesters because they knew that the police may not be as aggressive with them as with the people of color behind them. Now, look, I've said before, these women are more Lululemon than Antifa, right? These were regular white women from the community who had become fed up with what they were seeing. And that is what we're seeing now, that because we're trapped at home, because we're sheltering in place, that these are no longer stories that white Americans who are concerned are sort of anecdotally familiar with. They are seeing every day how the public service people, how the police, who we all pay for in our taxes, are not like friends, neighbors, and relatives fairly. And that's going to change things. And I think it's also made it difficult for those who want to defend the police and those who want to demonize Black Lives Matter to say, this is just brown people complaining because they're seeing that the victims of police violence in these protests are just as often white as they are black, as they are Hispanic and anybody else. Maya, let me ask you about this whole, having this happen against or juxtaposed against the backdrop of the pandemic. And talk about how you think that might have changed the dynamic. It was this sort of perfect storm, a confluence of events that gave this a dynamism that we haven't seen before. Yeah, I think one of the things that's so important about this whole uh, discussion, the multiracial, multigenerational nature of the demonstrations, is that in addition to saying that Black lives have not mattered when it comes to life, if you come into contact with a police officer, it's that Black lives haven't mattered when it came to access to health care or health insurance, that Black lives has not mattered when it came to what kind of job you had, whether that job had health benefits and whether that job directly put you in harm's way. And, you know, I think it exposed that black lives have not mattered when it came to whether our housing conditions were sufficiently safe, you know, whether or not we had enough space in homes, even just to live decent, healthy lives. There have been health conditions in the black community that has meant our, our risk of asthma is more than twice that of people who are white. And a lot of that is because of where and how we build all kinds of environmental insults and where traffic goes and where bus transfer stations are, where we locate waste. It's also true, you know, in terms of, you know, racism, quite frankly, being demonstrated in the social science as creating stress that also then creates underlying health conditions. So I think the fact that we saw so many Black and Latino and so many other Asian, Filipina in particular, kind of first responders, people who were keeping grocery shelves stocked, people who were driving the ambulances and loading people on gurneys, people who were, you know, literally the nurses in the hospital uh, who were crying, posting all kinds of video about and crying about what they were seeing and how stressed they were because they just wanted to help the people who were being brought to them. You know, and I think the other thing that was very stark, and I live in New York City, which was, you know, ground zero for this pandemic in many ways, that, you know, people could see that in the in Queens, where low-income Latinos live and work, immigrants of color, in Brooklyn, heavily black, that those were the hospitals, the not-for-profit and public hospitals, 
where the lines snaked around the block and buildings just because people were sick and wanted to make sure they didn't have COVID. And so those kinds of images, I think, really, really underscored for so many Americans who may not have understood that Black lives matter and have not mattered. And they could see just how deep and systemic the not mattering has gone in this country. Civil rights attorney Brian Stevenson said something that that stuck with me, which was basically that slavery didn't end in 1865, it evolved. And that what we saw happening in the streets was a symptom of something much, much larger, which goes back to the greatest evil of slavery, namely that black people have been made to feel less than. They are less human, they are less evolved, they are less worthy, they are less capable. And I wonder, is that something that you, that you detect? I mean, is that, it, it sounds like such an overarching theme, and yet there seemed to be an element of it with the duration and the intensity and the fact people were risking their lives going into the streets because of the pandemic. Yeah, and I, I really think what both Joy and Jason have said are so important to underscoring that, you know, every single one of us, has experienced being looked at as inferior in one way or the other, whether it's being you know, tracked when you're walking around a store, uh, seated at the back of a restaurant so that people walking by won't see you in the window, to the, the subtle things like that, but also the police violence, the, the fact that you feel at risk, and it doesn't matter how much money you earn. I mean, this is, this is the point to Joy and Jason's stories. It does not matter. And that, you know, we even had a story, and, and I was giving a speech in Detroit and uh, for community college there, and this was shortly after a white man shot at a 14-year-old black boy because he was lost and trying to find his way home, and he knocked on the man's door for help, and the man pulled out a shotgun. That was his response to a 14-year-old boy in need of help. And at that speech, you know, I I, I made reference to it. And I have mothers coming up to me crying on my shoulder because of their fear for their children. And we communicate it on every level, the conditions of our schools, how we talk about police violence. Just think, even in the context of um, our most recent case that's gone viral, which is Richard Brooks in Atlanta. You know, Donald Trump's statement was, well, he shouldn't have been fighting back. You know, he should have just done what the officers told him, which, you know, the message to us is it's always our fault. It's always something we did. It's always some shortcoming of ours. And this society has expressed that to us on a daily basis, no matter our achievement. And of course, for so many in our community who have been prohibited from achievement, it comes down triply as hard. And I think that that's just an extremely important reality that for Fortunately, younger people, particularly younger people who are white, have really stood up for in these demonstrations, have said, I get that I have a privilege because of my skin color that my friends do not, and I'm going to stand up for their equality. Joy, the other thing that was noticeable about these protests was that that a lot of the protesters came with an agenda. They, They have plans for 
um, housing and the environment and health care. And this is a more sophisticated sense than we've gotten before uh, for, through the criminal justice system, for, the, for changing the police system. They, they seem much more sophisticated, or am I, am I dreaming that up? No, I think that there's actually a long tradition um, of protests having sort of a multi-cameral look at the way society needs to change. This goes back to King, who wasn't just marching for the right to eat in Woolworths. He understood in the Woolworths lunch counters, he understood that what good would you, what good would it be to have the right to eat at the Woolworths lunch counter if you can't afford to eat there, or if Woolworths would refuse to hire you. Um, you know, the broad movement for civil rights was also a movement for economic rights. Uh, it was a movement that was about ending apartheid in South Africa. It was actually much broader um, than typically we talk about the Kingian movement in the 1960s. And I think now, uh, you know, Black Lives Matter, the three women who created it, these are all, you know, quite intellectual young women who have a, a much broader view of the way that society should be. And Black Lives Matter from the very beginning said this is not just about changing one thing about society, right? Because if you have somebody like the person who killed Trayvon Martin, um, who can act in the same way police act. So this is not just a police problem. Um, you know, in the case of Ahmad Arbery, this was not police, this was ex-police. So we have a problem of violence uh, toward the black body that goes beyond just policing. And in order to fix it, you know, I think about the defund of the police movement. People get really scared by this idea, you know, because for white Americans, that means like defunding, you know, the police department in Mayberry, because that is the you know, white, the average white citizen's relationship to police. It's more like the Andy Griffith show. For black people, it's more like cops, you know, it's more, much more violent. <laughs> and so when black people right. are saying keep on the police, they're saying something that's much more complicated than just take their money away and take away their pensions. It's reduce the money you're spending on this, on policing, which can be 40% of some of these mayors' budgets. And that means if you, have a, if you elect a black sheriff, they are disempowered to be able to change the black community that they're now uh, running because 40% of their budget is gobbled up by the police. And only about 5% of what police do is violent crime, murder, rape, and robbery. 95% so of it is literally crimes of uh, you're, you're in the wrong place at the wrong time. I see somebody walking down the street. I don't like the way they look. It's crimes where white Americans can use 911 to police the spaces where black people can go. So what deep on the police is saying, they're saying, no, 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 take away a lot of that money and then channel that toward things like education, after school opportunities, uh, social services opportunities, put more money into the hands of social workers. So if somebody's asleep in their car at Wendy's, you send a social worker, not a cop. If you actually did that and channeled more money into broader social services, improved education, improved housing, improved opportunity for employment and entrepreneurship, you'd create a more holistic change in black communities. And that's what these communities need. And there'd be less need for the police to even be around. And guess what? If they're not being called more, if they're not around more, you don't need as many of them. And that's how you end up defunding the police. Right. right. We're going to we're going to circle back to that because I think we want to talk about defunding the police some more. It's gotten so much attention. But I do want to ask you about another thing, which is the whole hyperpartisanship overlay of these protests because back in 1968 very often we hear this is this is a period that was like 1968 but back in 1968 you didn't have this toxic partisan politics you didn't have uh, the housing um, legislation in 1968 actually drew more republican support than it did democratic support 
So you didn't have this dug in. It was civil rights. People from both sides could coalesce around it. Now we all know what we have. We have a bitterly divided country. And how does, how does that put a roadblock in actually getting to change? Or how does it change the whole sort of notion of, of progress going forward? Well, I think the difference between now and the 1960s is that both the Democratic and Republican parties both had right and left wings in them that were pretty robust, right? Within the Democratic right. Party, you had the Dixiecrats right. in the South, and then you had the Northeastern uh, Democrats who were a lot more about urban issues and unions and things like that. Um, and whereas the Republican Party had a robust Northeastern wing that was a lot more moderate, uh, you know, dare even a little bit liberal. Um, and what's happened since then, I mean, in 1964, SNCC sent their, you know, their list of demands to both the Republican and Democratic uh, committees that they wanted both parties to consider their demands. Very different now, because after 1964, 1965, the Dixiecrat wing of the Democratic Party moved wholesale into the Republican Party to the point now where the South, which used to be the home of the Democrats, used to be the solid Democratic South, is now the Republican South in a lot of ways. You know, you've got pockets of, of, uh, of blue in these seas of red in these states, and the Republican Party is much more regional. It's much more white. It's much more Southern. And it's got a lot of that same sort of Dixiecrat feel and vibe uh, that, that the Democrats used to be stuck with. Now the Republicans are stuck with it. And I don't see how you change that right now, particularly since you've got a president who, even though he's a New Yorker, has leaned in to essentially becoming a Dixiecrat, Dixiecrat language dogs uh, being sicked on protesters. The way that he speaks sounds like an old Dixiecrat from 1967. So it's hard to change the partisan nature of this debate when the Republican Party has embraced a kind of, you know, white tribalism that is as vicious as what you saw in the 1960s in the Democratic Party. And whereas the Democrats are now the home of the vast majority of black voters, of brown voters, of Asian American voters. That is the home now of non-white voters and college educated white voters. It's, I don't see how you bridge that. And I think that the biggest thing that could maybe ease some of the strain and some of the rage and some of the toxicity, quite frankly, would be a different president. Because we've, we've had bad presidents, we've had racist presidents, Woodrow Wilson was racist, Andrew Johnson was racist, Andrew Jackson was racist, Richard Nixon was racist, you know, you could argue in a lot of ways, look, everybody loves Ronald Reagan, but he did do that Philadelphia, Mississippi start just to let the racists know that maybe he's not racist, but he wasn't really necessarily hardcore against them either. The bottom line is we now have a president who is hardcore. He literally retweeted a video in which in eight seconds, the eight seconds in, somebody screams white power. And he's now claiming he didn't hear it or didn't notice it, but everybody else did. And so the problem is you have a president who's pouring gasoline on the fires of racism and racial tribalism. You cannot fix it with that man as president. But Jason, the polls also showed that even a large number, a very large number of Republicans had empathy for the protesters, agreed that something had to change. Does, does that make a difference at all to you? No, not not with the way our current political system is set up. Look, I, I always think it's important to make this distinction when we look at what the president of the United States has done to this country and how our branches of government operate. Remember, Donald Trump did not get elected by the majority. 
Most people did not want this guy, right? And it took a tremendous amount of cheating and shenanigans and tricks at the state level for him to get into office, right? We can argue as to whether or not there was how much or what the influence of foreign intervention was. And so even if you have Republicans in the population as a whole who say, yeah, maybe we should care a little something about Black Lives Matter, or maybe we should do something about body cameras, or maybe we should do something about qualified immunity for police. The Senate, which is still in the pocket of President Trump, thanks to Mitch McConnell, will not do anything. They will not move on these issues. And if we have any doubt that our current Senate won't move on these issues, all we have to do is move back two years to the movements about what happened in Parkland. If the Senate wouldn't do anything about white children getting murdered in white suburban high schools and junior highs, you think they're going to do anything about an issue that they primarily depict as being one of poor black people? Of course not. They will not make any moves, even if the majority of the public wants that kind of change. So the challenge going forward is not going to be whether or not the national public has a sentiment towards these issues. The challenge is not whether or not black lives have gone from mattering to maybe mattering a little bit more. The challenge is going to be changing the leadership that we have at the state level, at your city level, and at the federal level in order to implement the changes that the public have been asking for. And quite frankly, if we don't do something about how elections are funded, how they're organized, and how they're overseen, we won't get those kinds of changes, and the public will be forced to go into the streets to get change because they can't seem to get the change that they want through the ballot box. Maya, do you agree? I absolutely agree that it's the structure of our politics that has denied the majority of the American people the kinds of policies that they support. And I think to, one of the things I'd build on from Jason's important points is that, you know, we're looking at a democracy in which the Republican Party in many places, in many states, has embarked upon an intentional strategy to make it harder for blacks and Latinos to vote and Native Americans where there's a large Native American population, that it's intentional, that the understanding that we can create barriers to the ballot uh, that will keep people of color, uh, women with college degrees may get through the sieve, but we can certainly reduce the number of black and Latino voters being able to vote. And we've even heard it directly out of the mouth of Donald Trump, but we also heard it from local elected officials, North Carolina, Florida, Texas, explicit statements to the effect that we can make it harder to vote with voter IDs and strict voter ID laws that make it hard for, say, a man named Mr. Settles in Houston, Texas, who is black, whose mother changed her name when she remarried when he was 14. So his ID, his state ID, did not match his birth certificate name because he had a different one then. And making it difficult for him to find a way to prove to them that he was who he said he was. That is a kind of example that was intentional. It was by design. It's why we have had court cases striking down some of these vicious state statutes. But in those lawsuits, we've had proof and evidence of Republicans saying this will help us rather than trying to gain the black or Latino vote, we'll block it. 
That was Maya Wiley, and you're listening to Conversations on the Green podcast. We're going to take a brief break, and we'll have more conversation with our guests when we return, and questions from our virtual audience, too. Stay with us. You're listening to the Conversations on the Green podcast, and I'm your host, Jane Whitney. This conversation was recorded on June 28, 2020. Our guests are Dr. Jason Johnson, professor of politics and journalism at Morgan State University and a political contributor at MSNBC and the GRIO, MSNBC anchor and host of AM Joy, Joy Reid, and civil rights activist and legal analyst Maya Wiley. I'm going to talk a lot more about the elections. Right now, in keeping with our town hall format, we've been so excited because we've had a lot of questions uh, from all over the country. And we're going to try and get to some of those. We also have some folks who uh, sent their questions in on video. And we're going to take the first question right now. My name is Jamarla, and I'm from New Jersey. I am the mother of three beautiful black babies. And I would like to know what can be done to teach children about police brutality, as well as the other injustices that we see today. Thank you. Here to answer that question is someone who has grappled with it from a lot of different perspectives. She is the first African-American female congresswoman from Connecticut. She is a mother of four children, including three black sons, and she is the wife of a police officer. We are delighted to have with us Congresswoman Johanna Hayes. Thanks for being with us. What do you say to Jamarla, who clearly has these three gorgeous kids and uh, something that you've had to deal with? Well, Jamarla, thank you so much for that question. And I have personally had to deal with it. And it's interesting because my responses have been different at different points in my life. As a young mother raising my children, I would tell them, just be a good person. Stay out of the way. Keep your head down. And I thought that was sufficient until I recognized that being a good person is not enough telling your children that there are bad people out there who are not nice to some people is not enough. I think we have to be explicit with these conversations so that our children understand what they're going to face in the world. To say, there are some people who don't like people just because they're black. And check in with them and make sure that they're okay because they may not even know how to frame their questions around this issue. But what I have seen is that we have to validate their feelings and let them know that they can be a part of the solution. I've seen kids as young as nine years old who are collecting art supplies for homeless shelters and foster youth. I've seen kids go out and just chalk um, Black Lives Matter in their driveway because it made them feel like they were contributing to a solution. So I think it starts with having really honest conversations with your children and showing them how they can, no matter how young they are, be a part of the solution and bring their questions back to you and that you will be their advocate. I asked the other panelists about whether or not they think this time is different. Is this something we're going to look back on in in 25 years and say this was a turning point, the George Floyd murder was a turning point? Do you think it's a turning point? I think this time is absolutely different, and I'm excited about what will happen on the other side. I think you've heard from some of the other panelists and what we see. Everyone in America was disgusted by what they saw. 
not just the people who were affected. And for so long, it's just the communities who were affected who are standing up and saying, this is not okay. But we see people from all demographics, all age groups saying, we have to change. And we have elected officials who are positioned to make that change immediately. So I know that this is different. Uh, I think we've heard a lot about this being an inflection point. And I think when we look at on it, when we look back on this years later, we'll see that this was the start of some significant structural changes in the way we police in this country and the way we deal with communities of color, whether it be in housing, in education, in healthcare, and really looking very closely at the structural things that need to change. You are married to a police officer who actually had the coronavirus and he's well now, right? Yes. He is well, and my husband is 25 years on the police force in the community where we were born and raised. And he has said that some of his colleagues police differently in the north end of our city. And as a young officer, he didn't, wasn't really sure how to have that conversation. This is why we need legislation. We can't just leave it up to the one or two black officers in a department to try to change the culture. But I know that my community is better off having had my husband here because he represents a different perspective for some of his colleagues of who they think we are in this community. And when young kids see him, when people in our neighborhood see him, he is someone who has developed those relationships and is able to have real conversations with them and show that he's there to protect them, not to be a warrior in their communities. But that's the problem, that a lot of people now see police as the warriors. They don't see them as the guardians like your husband. And you have been part of legislation. You've been part of trying to, to change the status quo. How do you think that should be done? I think rightfully so. People, I mean, the concerns of people in the black community are valid. Police have come in and they see them as warriors and not guardians. The legislation that we pass has so many key provisions in accountability, in transparency, but also in training and investing in our communities. I think, I mean, when my husband joined the force, he was one of two black officers in his class. If we are developing relationships and letting you know, young black boys and girls know that you belong in police departments and you can be a part of guarding, guarding your community and really change the dynamics, all of that has to happen. But it cannot happen if we refuse to even acknowledge that we have problems with the way that police operate in our black and brown and minority communities. And yet, what's going to happen to the legislation? If, if it goes to the Senate, is there any chance at all of it going anywhere? I hear that a lot. What happens when it goes to the Senate? I think on the House of Representatives, we have done our part. We have done due diligence and put forth really strong legislation that has accountability attached. I hear a lot of people talk about the Democrats refuse to even accept or negotiate with uh, Tim Scott's bill. That bill has no teeth and no accountability. And it's right that many of the Republican, actually all of the Republican amendments were rejected on the House side. But the amendments really took away the structure of the bill, the accountability of the bill. They call for um, testing and studies and not accountability. The very first amendment that was offered by Republicans was to strike all of the language and replace it with the Justice Act. I mean, these are amendments where 
you can't trust that if we took it to the Senate that we couldn't even negotiate it back. I think the House put forth a really strong piece of legislation with, uh, in collaboration with not only the Congressional Black Caucus, but with police departments, with community leaders, with the mothers and the victims of police brutality. What you're hearing come out of the Senate side, the only people uh, that were even a part of the conversation outside of legislators were law enforcement. We cannot have an honest conversation without asking the people who are directly affected. What does this mean to you and what is it that you need to see? So the question becomes, how do we get to a place? How do we get legislation that actually means something, that actually has some substance? I think that happens in so many ways. I think public sentiment has to really pressure the Senate to take up these bills uh, and, and negotiate and really begin to look at it, to be willing to put forth legislation that has accountability and transparency in it, and really forces police officers to acknowledge that there are problems in the way our communities are, are, are policed. But again, I think Joy said it at the top of the hour, really having leaders in place who are gonna move forth this type of legislation. I'm hoping that this happens before November, but if it doesn't, I think it's a call to the American public to say, if you are not happy with the results that you've seen thus far, then you have the ability to change all of this in one day with one vote. And I mean, these things have to happen. We cannot go back to where we were before we watched the life leave George Floyd uh, after eight minutes on camera. And if we can't do that, I think it's incumbent upon the American people to change the leadership structure because, uh, I mean, not even to give a plug, but Vice President Biden has, has made a commitment in his first 100 days to make sure that all of these things were part of any agenda that he has. We're out of time with you, but I want to ask you one final question. You have an amazing story. Many people are familiar with you. Grew up on the projects of Waterbury. You were raised by your grandmother. Your mother had addiction problems. You had your, first, you had your daughter at age 17. And you worked 8,000 jobs to get 12,000 degrees and to move on and eventually to become uh, a congresswoman. How much hope do you have? You've got four kids. You've got a granddaughter, Zora your first granddaughter. How, how optimistic are you looking ahead after that whole progression, that whole um, panorama that you've witnessed? How optimistic are you, Johanna? You can't, I mean, you can't do this work without being hopeful. Everything that you just talked about, to me, were, although other people perceive them as obstacles, they were blessings. You know, I was, my life has been draped in grace, and I've met so many people along the way who invested in me, who helped me to get those degrees that you talked about, who helped me to find public housing. And I want to make sure that we have opportunities available for other people. I know those people exist because they have just guided me throughout my life. And I think that we are at a place where everybody who has some connection to their neighbor or can help out in their community is stepping up. And that has been the story of my life. So I am probably more hopeful today than I was even a year ago because people are doing, we are resetting our communal morality and people are doing and saying the things that they probably wouldn't have done a year ago because the need is so much greater. Thank you so much. Thank you. and and. Every Thank best you. wish to you and to your family. And 
we will be watching. Thank you. Thank you. I'm going to go back now to our conversation about reforms, specific reforms. And Joy Reid, you did a town hall recently about changing the policing system. You uh, started your show yesterday talking about the national debate over policing. What do you think, if you had to, to name three things that have to be done tomorrow when they go back into session, what would they be? Well, first of all, I just want to big up Johanna Hayes, uh, who was uh, elected in 2018. I believe she's the first black woman to represent um, Connecticut uh, in the United States Congress. This is the first black woman Democrat. And she was Teacher of the Year before uh, she was uh, a congresswoman. So she is fantastic. Uh, there is a great new crop of uh, political leaders in Congress that are very impressive. But if there are three things I think that have to be done in order to fundamentally change the system. I think the first one is that qualified immunity has to be looked at and has to be changed. Qualified immunity essentially exempts police officers from any sort of civil liability, even if they kill someone um, while on the job. I think that's one thing that has to be looked at. The second one is banning the chokehold nationally. Um, I can go all the way back uh, to a case of a guy called Arthur Miller in 1978, who was killed by chokehold by the NYPD. And you can go all the way through, through Eric Garner, through George Floyd, it's all over the country. Chokehold deaths are rampant. There've even been huge. There've even been chokeholds after the George Floyd case that we've seen um, occur. So the chokehold has to be banned, and I think banning no-knock warrants, um, the thing that killed Breonna Taylor, the ability of police without even knocking on your door to bust into your home um, and just and, and just start guns blazing, um, that has to end. I think if those three things, and those are all, by the way, in the House bill, and I think Congresswoman Hayes was right in saying the Senate bill was a toothless. Uh, nothing. It was just suggestions and some grant. Um, the House bill is actually pretty strong. And I think if it passed um, or if it has to wait for a new United States Senate in 2021 it would be a pretty good start. But this reminds me of the whole issue of gun safety, where once you see countless polls talking about the American people want something done. They want to see some sort of crackdown. And yet nothing gets legislated. No laws are passed. There's no political will for it. So people get to the point where there's a cynicism that says nothing's going to change. Now, now, do you actually think that something could change this time, perhaps maybe waiting for a new administration? Well, I think, you know, and it's interesting because uh, I've had a lot of people say that they compare the action of uh, police unions and the power that they exert to similar to the NRA, which has stood in the way of gun reform right. for decade after decade, despite the fact that most Americans want reform. I think the difference now is that the people standing in the way of reform are themselves in jeopardy. Uh, there are three cycles in the United in the United States Senate. The last two were more favorable to Republicans. This is the most Democratic leaning cycle um, that we've had in six years meaning the people who are in jeopardy, uh, it's 20 Republicans versus 10 Democrats. And a lot of them are in surprising states. Um, there are places like North Carolina, which Barack Obama won in 2008. Um, there are places like South Carolina, where Lindsey Graham is facing a surprisingly difficult battle. There are places where Republicans are in real trouble, like Colorado, where I grew up, uh, like Arizona, like Maine. Um, it, it's, it's not clear that Republicans can hang on to the Senate. And all it would take is a net of, of four seats, of, you know, three seats, basically. Um, and Democrats would then control the United States Senate. So in theory, they could, could take that House bill, pass it again under the new United States Senate in 2021, 
And then it wouldn't matter what Mitch McConnell wants, because in theory, even his seat is not certain. I'm not sure if Charles Booker wins uh, ultimately uh, that primary that he can't beat Mitch McConnell. Mitch McConnell has about a 32 percent favorable rate in, in Kentucky. And the current governor of Kentucky is a Democrat. And his dad was also governor, who's also a Democrat. Democrats can win in Kentucky. And if they can win in Alabama, they can win in Kentucky. So I think Republicans need to all consider their seats unsafe. All of the Republicans running, John Cornyn included. Texas, we don't know when Texas is going to become purple, but it's going to. And we don't know if it's this year or if it's, uh, you know, two or four years from now. So I think the best defense that the public now has to get the reform that the vast majority want is the ballot box. And if, uh, if the public can overcome the voter suppression that we know is coming and can unseat this Senate, and unseat Mitch McConnell as majority leader, that absolutely this change can happen within a few months. Until it does, Maya, though, I want to go back to defund the police because we got a question from Linda in North Carolina who articulated what a lot of people say, which is that defund the police, is that the best way to describe shifting priorities? It sounds radical, it sounds scary. Can you explain why that terminology has been chosen? Well, first of all, let me say that terminology is usually chosen to energize the base of people who need a simple way of communicating, not just to the public, but with each other about who is being called in to the movement, to the demonstrations. And the, the point here is that, you know, the people of this country, particularly people of color, but also people who are white, are tired of tinkering. They want transformation. They want us to recognize that the whole thing is rotten. You know, one of the things that was so powerful about these demonstrations is it got Americans saying, oh, racism is systemic. Not racism is a problem of policing, that racism is in everything. Therefore, when we're talking about policing, what we've really said in this country is, you know, policing is broken because it works the way it was designed to. It was designed as containment and control for people who society fears. And unfortunately, we have a history in this country where, as Donald Trump has you know, egged on, where the fear mongering has been Mexicans are rapists and criminals. Black people have gunshot fire on every corner. These are things that Donald Trump literally campaigned on and even suggested that people, police officers should be able to rough people up when they police. But the problem with policing is that we have essentially, and Joy, Joy really laid this out so clearly, we have been asking police to solve social problems rather than solving social problems. People are not the problem. The problem is, that we haven't provided enough uh, good quality education in this country. And in fact, we've been cutting the education budget back, that we have been talking about how to deal with school-based discipline, forgetting the fact that kids are traumatized and they're traumatized whether it's by something bad that's happening in the family that can be corrected and supported. You know, and these are the kinds of things that require dollars. In New York City alone, we have 5,000 employees of the New York City Police Department who sit in school buildings, but we have 560 school psychologists for 1.1 million kids. 
that's that that just tells you right there that we are thinking wrong and funding wrong when we're thinking about what actually our people need and what is public safety. So really what the conversation is about, it's not the word. It's the investment. It's whether we see that the investment we need to make as a country is in people, all our people and black people. I'm just going to take one other little pass at this because words do matter. And, and you're talking about upending the sort of social order in a sense, whether you're talking about state policing and militarization and, and really looking at trying to shore up the social safety net and going more in that direction. I just wonder if, if defunding the police is something that, that people find that they don't understand it. It makes sense when you explain it, but you have to explain it. And we live in a culture where it's a bumper sticker culture, as you well know, and people don't always understand the backstory. So that's, that's just sort of maybe why Linda in North Carolina wanted to know, as did I, what the justification was for using that, that phrase. Look, I think the reality of all movements is there are multiple words used. You know, there, there are groups using the words divest and invest. There are all kinds of words being utilized. I think the point here is that it has called us to a conversation. And the conversation it is calling us to is to fundamentally rethink our values and priorities and to make people the priority. And frankly, this is something that police officers have been asking for. It is in the interest of police officers because they know that that literally, literally 95% of the time that they're responding to a call, it's because someone is having a mental health crisis and, and needs an expert to come and help them or because somebody right. is having some kind of problem and they don't know who to call. So they call the police because there is no one else to call. And that conversation is such an important one also for the police because it will make their jobs better. Okay. We have another question right now. And Jason, this is, this is going to be for you. So let's have the next question if we could. Hi, my name is Ethan and I'm from Connecticut. I believe the power and the responsibility to end racism rests with white people. We're either part of ending it or we're supporting it. What is the single most important thing that I can do as a white person in the anti-racism movement? Thank you. Well, I got the easy one, right? <laughs> <laughs> you got oh, it well, right. I'm, I'm <laughs> Sorry. I'm, I'm glad. <laughs> I'm glad Ethan asked that question because I think it's important. Uh, and it, and it, it actually trickles into what we were talking about before with defunding the police. The single most important thing that white people can do when it comes to systematic racism is hold other white people accountable. Period. Hold other white people accountable. I have been saying this for years. Look, white supremacy is a white people problem. Black people didn't start it. Black people can't fix it. Ultimately, um, we, we've gotten very good at surviving in this country, but we can't fix, nor can we even see what is in the hearts of white people. But white people do. And white people are in rooms and spaces that black people are not in. And it goes deeper than just saying, you know what, Frank? that thing you said was racist. Or you know what, Bobby, that thing you said was racist. It's about changing the kind of legislation you support. It's about changing the kinds of businesses that you put your money behind. It's about rather than, and we get this a lot, for example, when Black Lives Matter be, sort of began six or seven years ago and you had white friends and colleagues who would say, oh, I kind of agree with Black Lives Matter, but, but here, tell me what it's about. No, educate yourself. 
If you're concerned about ending racism, then put across the effort to study what is going on in this country the same way you would a football team, a basketball team, or who's on who's on the voice this week. And that's ultimately what white people can do. And, and, and this goes with, I think it's really important when we talk about something like defunding the police. Now, I've, I'm, I'm in a very different place, but I think we need to understand this because a lot of it, when we're talking about the concerns about defunding or, 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 or abolishing the police, it's because white Americans say, oh my gosh, what about my safety? Well, think about what we've also been willing to accept in public rhetoric, what white America has accepted in public rhetoric. We accepted people running for president that said, abolish the IRS, abolish the Department of Education. In 2012, Mitt Romney said, I'm going to abolish PBS and put Big Bird out of a job. No one blinked. White America said, ah, okay, we'll think about it. We'll listen to your argument. So why can't white Americans then consider the possibility of a repeal and replace of the police? We will abolish the police and replace them with something more effective, something more humane, something that cares about people who are suffering from opioid addictions, something that's concerned about people who are assault victims, something that's concerned about people who are suffering from mental illness. White America needs to fundamentally change how they hold each other accountable in private spaces, in business spaces, and politically. And that's the number one thing you can do. You may lose friends. You may lose family. You might get kicked out of a meeting. But that's the challenge you're going to have to face because black people have been doing it since we were brought here. See, it was an easy question for you. Um, We have another question. Uh, Dr. Michelle Menison in Connecticut wants to know about something that Dr. King said really was at the heart of true equality. And Joy, that's something you talked a little bit about before, which is economic equality. And you mentioned the integrated lunch counter. And as Dr. King said, what good is it if a man can't afford a hamburger? So this raises the whole issue of how I, I think it was David Leonard today in the New York Times talked about how blacks in terms of wealth and income and opportunity really have not changed at all in the last 70 years. They're basically where they were when Truman was in office. Where do you start to break through what is probably the biggest stumbling block to progress? Well, that that is not a very difficult question because it's very complex and it's so systematic, right? So, um, you know, what this country would have to do, um, one answer that's quite straightforward is that there needs to be a serious reparations conversation. And there's a lot more discussion about it and saying that some of these systems can't be fixed without a serious reparative action by the federal government. Um, which they had to do with Japanese Americans, which they've had to do in, in a lesser amount, they haven't done very well with uh, indigenous people, but that there might need to be some very aggressive economic repair. That's one thing. And you think about a place like Wilmington, North Carolina, which was overrun by uh, white supremacists to replace the government, to take, to de- you know, to de- just destroy um, and dismantle that community um, or what happened in Tulsa. Um, and it may be in those situations, there needs to be direct economic repair. But I think broadly for African-Americans, part of it is rebuilding the public education system, the public school system, um, in creating a pathway to more college attainment. Um, there's another conversation where reparations might have to do with making it more affordable for uh, African-Americans to go to college, for black folks to go to college. Um, then you have to look at the other structures. You know, In banking, for instance, when black people come to a bank for a loan, I actually have a, a, a colleague whose mom um, is a hairdresser who's Latina, um, who went for one of those loans that had to do with the COVID-19 situation and was denied, 
whereas big businesses and white businesses are just soaking up that money. Um, and so we need to look at the fact that there's a lot of racism that's endemic to just the way that money is distributed in, the, in this country and that there's no access. What I used to tell my students who are mostly white at Syracuse is that individual white people, when you're in positions higher, um, you can take a step by saying, well, this is a very qualified black or brown person. Let me hire them. Let me promote this person uh, as opposed to yet another white person getting an opportunity. It might take white Americans giving up some opportunities and allowing uh, black people to step forward who are perfectly capable of doing the job. But this, the structural part is a lot harder, honestly, because a lot of this is so built in because the systems are already rigged. Uh, the system on banking, the system on loans, the system in a lot of ways on legacies, being able to waltz into Harvard University, whereas you know somebody like me who went to Harvard from public school, you know, we have to actually earn our way in. So, you know, I think it's going to be difficult. It's not going to be a two or three or five or 10 year project to fix the economic disparity. I think it's going to be a 20, a 30, a 40, a 50 year project, unfortunately, in this country. But the whole issue, again, in reading today, Nicole Hannah-Jones's piece on uh, reparations and what's owed, basically, to be honest, I had no idea that we were looking at that sort of, I mean, real economic oppression beyond economic oppression, where there's not even a chance for people of color to catch up. And um, you think that this is a process that it, it maybe because we're talking about it more, but it sounds like it's more in the forefront than it used to be. Well, I mean, I'll, I'll tell you a quick story. There's a town in Miami called Overtown. And Overtown used to just be what black people called downtown, because in a lot of cities in this country, in most cities, in, this, in most states in this country, black people and Jewish people were typically herded into downtown because it was a place nobody wanted to live. It was near the industrial land. It was where people worked. Nobody wanted to live there. And so you have a lot of downtown that used to be populated by mainly black people and Jewish people. The ghettos is where that we were allowed to live. So Overtown uh, was one of those. And then when Dwight Eisenhower uh, decided to build the interstate highway system, one of the places that he decided to locate one of these great highways that were going to allow white Americans to cruise out to the suburbs for a whole new way of life economically, he built it right through Overtown. And Overtown, when black people had hold of it, definitely had some poverty, but it also had shops, it had uh, restaurants, it, had, it was a thriving little community that if you look at the old pictures of it from the early 1950s, it was a great little town. Um, black people had their churches and, you know, had their own, you know, the funeral parlor. Everything was there. It was self-contained completely. When Eisenhower rammed a giant highway through it, the black people there were driven to a place called Liberty City. And they were driven into uh, the project in Liberty City. And they were lured there to say, listen, you'll be better off here because you've got internal plumbing and all of these sort of 1950s, you know, new uh, you know, sort of new things that were, uh, you know, coming across in the 50s. There might be, you know, a washing machine down the hall from your, from your apartment. But Liberty City was never given the services to thrive the way Overtown did. And so Liberty City, even today, um, is a place that is extremely poor. It is extremely struggling. There's lots of drug addiction. The schools are not good. It was never given any chance to survive. It was deprived of oxygen while black people were herded there. And what's happened to Overtown? Well, now Overtown is where rich white people want to live. 
because now Overtown, near downtown, is convenient for affluent young white people. Right. And so they all want to live downtown, just like Harlem, just like Five Points in Denver. All of these downtowns that used to be a terrible place to live are now the chic place to live. And black people can't even afford to live in Overtown. That's the story all over this country. I could do that exact same story in Denver, Five Points, do that exact same story in New York, Harlem, Brooklyn, over and over and over again. If we keep getting driven out of where we have set up shop and tried to create a life and pushed somewhere where we don't even get basic garbage services, no services, it's allowed to fall apart. What do people expect black people to do if there's not a reparation style massive investment, a Marshall Project for Black America. Right. It's never been done. Black people worked in this country for free, for three, 400 years. And then we're told, goodbye, you have your freedom now, we're even. We're not even, and we're not going to be even because we were never given the opportunity as a people to get up off of our, off of our knees. And so if this country expects Black people to call it fair and square because we got one Black president out of 45, it's never gonna happen. And I think that white America has to come to grips with that. We're gonna switch gears. We have another question from two brothers. And Maya, this one's for you. I'm Kirby from New York. And I'm Raz from New York. And our question is? How do we promote being an anti-racist versus just being not racist in our schools? and uh, promote a healthy um, environment for everyone and an inclusive environment for everyone. Another easy question, Maya. <laughs> oh, well, but what an amazing question. I mean, the fact that we're getting these questions is in itself such a great, wonderful right. hope. Uh, you know, the, the, I, I want to I want to say something that's been happening here here in New York, which is students uh, of all races at questioning how schools are organized and what's taught in them. And a big part, just as Joy was talking about how we undermined and gutted black communities that were surviving economically and actually had some good things going on in them and how we destroyed that. And we've done the same thing with education. And in fact, you know, we have returned to segregating schools and we are the only industrialized country in the world that funds our schools locally, that doesn't really have a major national strategy for ensuring quality public education. So, you know, for students who are white, uh, one of the things that has been so important is to actually question who's in the building if the building doesn't look like their communities. And questioning and asking both of themselves and of administrators what the admissions processes are. How is admissions determined? Why is it that their school has resources that other schools in their communities don't, that don't look like them? And then, and then in addition to that, asking about the curriculum. You know, Joy and Jason have just given master classes on history. And one of the realities of our country is that no one knows this history unless they go dig for it themselves by and large or are lucky enough to be in a college or university that has an African-American studies department or a Latinx studies department or, or an Asian that talks about how Asians and Native Americans were discriminated against in this country. If we don't understand how we created the problems we have, we don't get around supporting solving them. And I think our kids, particularly kids who are white, in our, in our school systems, public and private, 
demanding answers to those questions, demanding curriculum that teaches them that history and informs them so that they become full citizens of a truly, truly democratic, pluralistic society. It's time we move on to the November elections, Jason, and you're the politics professor, so I'm going to start with you. Juan Williams, who was a Fox contributor, talked about the big story, the really big story politically this year isn't being talked about, which is that blacks define the vote. And he says that basically they're the ones who are going to determine who gets elected in November. Is that true? Uh, that has always been the case. It's just a matter of, of, of how both sides, how Democrats and Republicans deal with African-American voters. Look, I want to point out the only reason that Joe Biden is the nominee is because African-Americans turned out for him. Uh, they turned out for him in South Carolina. They turned out for him in subsequent places. Uh, the greatest fear of the Republican Party is large African-American turnout. That's why you see Brian Kemp doing what he's doing. That's why you see uh, uh, Governor DeSantis doing what he's doing in Florida. African-American voters will be key to this fall's elections results. But as we have been talking about overall, it will be black voters in conjunction with white voters. It'll be black voters who are protected and empowered by legislators that may be not majority black that are going to be able to make the difference. If states like Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and North Carolina are not aggressive about making sure that mail-in voting is available, are not aggressive about providing enough polling centers so that the few people who do want to actually vote in person can go to those places, then the black vote will be suppressed, Donald Trump will do whatever it is he can, and he will get reelected this fall. I cannot stress this enough. Donald Trump did not get the majority vote in 2016. People don't like this man. They never did. And Joe Biden is going to get every single voter to vote for Hillary Clinton. And I believe this now, Joe Biden will probably do better with white voters than any Democrat in the last 45 years. If you're a Democrat and you get 40 percent of the white vote, that's a blowout. And, and Donald Trump knows this. Donald Trump got impeached because he was that afraid of Joe Biden. So the question is going to be, can black voters vote? Because we're allowed to vote in the numbers that we will probably vote in this fall. If we can avoid or at least fight back against the oppression in critical blue states and swing states, you will see not only a flip of the Senate, you will see a Joe Biden as president of the United States, you will very likely see a Kamala Harris as vice president, and you will finally see a repudiation of the Trumpism that has taken this country down an absolutely horrendous path over the last three and a half years. Is it true that if blacks turned out the way they did in 2012, that the Electoral College would run 294 for the Democrats to 244 for the Republicans? Uh, pr pretty much. And, you know, the reason African-American turnout has, has pretty much been down is, it, look, it's not about black people being lazy or not being enthusiastic. It's voter suppression. It, it's the gutting of the Voting Rights Act. And every single time, I mean, how many dozens of documentaries need to come out about questionable voting machines in Florida, about questionable voting machines in Texas? As Maya mentioned earlier in this conversation, how many different times do you have to hear Republicans all but say, we are trying to keep black people and young people and young black people from voting? Uh, African-Americans are going to be the key constituency. But I, I also think this is really important. Just because African-Americans are going to turn out to vote does not mean that the Democratic Party can rest on their laurels because 
you have to not only bring people out to vote, but you have to give them something to vote for. You have to give them something to be enthusiastic about. You have to have a kind of policy agenda that black people who are a bit disenchanted, a bit frustrated, a bit concerned, want to see something about. This summer is a fantastic opportunity. Joe Biden seems thus far to kind of get what he's going to need to do about policing. But trust me, we're only in June. We have several months to go, and there are other stronger policy positions that Democrats in uh, in Alabama, in Kentucky, in South Carolina, in Colorado, and all these key Senate states, they too are going to have to step up policies that appeal to black voters. All right. So, Joy, even though it's a referendum, as many people say on, on uh, Mr. Trump, they have to have something to vote for. And there's a lot at stake right now for people of color, for black, brown and indigenous people, including the economy and the failure of America to have any kind of reasonable health care pro- uh, program for a lot of people. So plus the fact that Russian meddling the last time, according to the Senate Intel Committee, basically depressed the black vote uh, in, in the last election. So how, how do you see this shaping up for November? Right. And, and I think I'm so glad that you made that point, because, you know, a lot of people don't take into account that the voter suppression, the, the international voter suppression that came from Russia was very much directed at young black voters at trying to turn them off Hillary Clinton. They were all over the Facebook pages and Twitter uh, accounts of young black voters trying to make sure that they saw Hillary Clinton as somebody who locked up black people, even though she had no power to do that in any of the positions that she held, um, that they repeated the super predator line over and over and over again. They would uh, pretend to be black women and then talk to and communicate with other black, with real human black uh, people and, you know, try to move them away from her. And they did that just enough and they got just enough success with that, particularly with progressive young black voters to get them to not vote to get them to stand down so that Donald Trump barely sneaked through in those three Midwestern states. That will happen again. Uh, Russia probably uh, is going to help uh, Donald Trump again. They're already interfering, according to our intelligence services, in our election and trying to help Donald Trump get back in. So we know that's going to happen. We also know that there will be aggressive voter suppression by Republicans in these states because as they see these, uh, these incredible numbers of people registering to vote, record numbers in Georgia. You're seeing record numbers of Latino voters uh, registering to vote in places like Texas and Arizona. The response to that will be voter suppression. So what is going to have to happen on the Democratic side, if Democrats want to win, is they're going to have to have an army of lawyers. They're going to need to clone Maya Wiley and have thousands of Maya Wileys all over this country ready to fight for every single voter to be able to vote. It's not going to be easy. It's going to be intense. I I suspect that it's going to be probably the worst voter suppression that we've seen since the 1960s. Uh, And so that's going to be a problem. You also have the question of illness. You have the question of whether people will be healthy enough to vote, whether people will be prevented from voting by mail and have to take the chance of voting in person, uh, like we saw in Wisconsin, where people were forced to stand in the rain in some cases and take risk of their health in order to vote. The motivation will be there. Black voters and uh, college-educated white women in particular very much want Donald Trump gone. The question is, can they do it? And can the Democratic Party get itself together to do a robust, not just voter turnout effort, but a voter protection effort 
And the last thing I'll say is, will they be willing to do something they haven't done since Mississippi used to be a swing state, which is why Ronald Reagan went there in 1980? Will they fight in the South? Because this year, the action is not just in the West in states like Texas and states like Arizona, and not just in the Midwest, where we're where Democrats have been obsessed, and they need to be, because they don't want to lose those states again. But the South is ripe for a return to the Democratic Party right now. You have states like North Carolina and Georgia, and even states like South Carolina and Kentucky, where there is real opportunity. Even in Mississippi, uh, Stuart Stevens, longtime Mississippi, hardcore Republican his entire life, is the person who told me that Democrats were insane not to play in the Cindy Hyde-Smith um, versus Mike Espy race when they did that runoff. That if they just put a little money in, Espy could have won. And so the reality is, is that Democrats need to look south. They need to spend money and they need to get lawyers. If they do that, then yes, that Democrats have a very good chance of taking back the Senate and taking back the White House. You could just look at the uh, primaries from early June to illustrate how turnout is off the charts. Black women are on fire. Uh, women, women of color up and down the ballot. Ella Brown, the first African-American mayor of Ferguson, Missouri. I, I mean, that tells the story right there. Um, but we have one last question, and I'm going to put this one up for grabs. It does have to do with, again, turnout in the upcoming election. So let's hear from Patricia of New York. Hi, good afternoon. My name is Patricia. I am from New York, originally from El Salvador, Central America. This is my question. Many immigrants who are now U.S. citizens don't trust elections to be fair because of the corruption they witness in their own countries, which often leads to lack of political engagement. How would you encourage immigrant populations to become more involved in politics? Who wants to take that one? Quick crack at it, uh, only because I will be very short so that my colleagues can jump into it as well. Um, that's such an important question because right now the largest minority group in the country is not African-Americans, it's Latinos, it's the Latinx community. And uh, But the voting strength of the Latinx community is at half right now of their voting strength, meaning they represent about 7% of the electorate, but 15% of the population. Why? Part of it is just exactly what Patricia was talking about, is a lack of trust in the system. And also the second factor is youth. Um, the, the Latinx community is the youngest immigrant, uh, the youngest population in the United States. And so because they're young, they vote like young people, which is not a lot. And so I think what you need to see is trusted voices within the community who are the people who are communicating with immigrant communities about what they can do and about the possibilities. I know Voto Latino is really doing a fantastic job of communicating and encouraging immigrant communities to not be afraid to come forward, to trust the system enough to just go ahead and vote um, to change their own community. So I think trusted voices are important. It's important who goes into these communities, that they have a social connection, that they have a cultural connection. It can't just be the DNC sending in whoever. It's got to be people who've got a cultural and a social connection to Makes those sense. communities who can speak to them. Yeah, I want to add this Anybody really quickly. Exactly, ahead, what, yeah, exactly what Joy said. Look, you, you can't just 
you know, and this is not an insult to her because she's a fantastic politician. You can't just airdrop Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez into every Latino community and assume that's going to work. You have to, as a party, invest in local leadership. And then, look, the the, the, the voting process, that that's the end. There is a long courtship that the Democratic Party has to engage in in order to engage Latino voters on a regular basis. It's not just about language. It's about having elected officials who feel that they've been empowered. They can go and they can talk to people and say, hey, look, this is how you vote. This is what your vote will look like. This is the information you should be getting. This is how you're protected. If someone tries to challenge your, your status as an American citizen, this is what you have to do. You have to empower people over weeks and months and potentially years in order for them to feel comfortable engaging in that process. And if you don't, they're going to be too afraid. And I promise you, even if people get mail-in ballots, I promise you, that will not be enough. Because I can tell you right now, I'm pretty sure everybody on this panel can tell you, I have stacks of mail at my house that I never even look at. It might be between the bills or something from, from a coupon. So you're going to have to talk to people and say, you know that document that you got? We called you about it last week. Can you please go check on that? That is the only way you can go engage any voters, especially a skeptical community like Latino immigrants. And can I just add, because what's so important about this, Go ahead, Maya. It's, it's, it's also true for black, the black community. I mean, one of the reasons right. why black women are so valuable to the Democratic Party is because black women get out on their block and go knock on their neighbor's door and say, come right. on, I'm, I'm putting you in a car, we're going to the poll. Or did you vote? Or did you got your ballot? Did you apply for your absentee ballot? That is the same kind of investment that needs to happen in Latino community. And Joy is right, just to underscore this point, if we were really deeply investing in the ability of Latino communities to actively engage in their own communities around voting and around political participation, the Democratic Party would net almost six million votes. That right. is the difference. That is the difference. And same with the black community, it would be nine million. But what yeah. happens is the money comes late. It comes two weeks before the election, and it is not able to be deployed by neighbors and local folks doing what they do best every single day. All right, we're going to go to final questions now. I'm going to start with you, Jason. 60% of African Americans are optimistic that something is going to change this time. Are you one of them? I am. I am never someone that people would call an optimist. I prefer to say I'm a realist. I, but I, I guess that, this. Jason. I guess. Yes. <laughs> but but I will say yeah. um, I I do think I do think a change is coming this year, and and I have been I have been so encouraged by not just the different colors of people that I've seen out there protesting, but the conversations that we're having, the changes that we're seeing in multiple entities. I, what has happened at the New York Times and Bon Appetit, media outlets that have been changing their attitudes about how they empower and what they do with black staff. I have seen this happening at the business level as businesses are saying, hey, maybe we should encourage more black executives in this company or that company. I do think a change is coming. And I'll also say this, the environment that we're in now has seen such a higher level of participation. Every one of my students across the country, uh, former students and current students, they are out protesting being active. I will admit this up front. I, I, I sent $500 to get some of my kids out of jail from a protest in L.A. I mean, that and these are students who who I had to try and encourage them to vote two years ago are getting involved. So I believe we are at a turning point. I don't think this is going to dissipate this summer. I don't think this is going to peter out because I think we're going to see, unfortunately, more abuse, more tragedies, uh, more violence on the part 
part of police. And that's going to galvanize people to actually manifest the changes that they're asking for at the ballot box this fall, even though it's going to be a really, really tough road. Maya, you followed in your father's footsteps. He was a civil rights activist, George Wiley. You are a civil rights activist. You have two daughters. Is it Naja and Kai? Naja, <laughs> yes. How have they been impacted watching all of this? Well, so I want to say, uh, building on Jason, this is a movement. It's not a moment. It's a movement. It didn't start with George Floyd. My kids were protesting before George Floyd was murdered. They were protesting the fact that here in New York State, the governor had decided that he wanted to put more police in the subway stations. We've had protests happening for years now. And what's finally happening is the nation is catching up to where our our young people and our activism has already been. And that's why it's not going anywhere. My kids have been in the streets, frankly. Luckily, I didn't have to bail them out, but I did have them write my cell phone number on there and their friends' arms in case I needed to get that call. Uh, but that's the reality, and, it ha and it's not new. And that's why it's not going anywhere. Joy, you get the final word. I heard you say, I think it was on Lawrence O'Donnell's show, that yes, absolutely, Gianna Floyd was right. Her father has changed the world. How did you change the world? Well, absolutely. You know, the, the martyrdom of George Floyd um, will go into the history books as the moment when the country uh, was forced to watch. You know, everybody who walked, sat through that eight minutes and 46 seconds of absolute hell, um, watching him take uh, these breaths, uh, his last breaths, and beg for his life, I don't think anybody um, could not be moved by it. Um, and, and this little girl probably doesn't even remember her father that well. She, she was, she's so young. Um, but when she grows up, what she'll learn about him uh, is that a bill was named for him that changed policing. Uh, that a movement grew up around him that changed the way that this country thought about the police, um, that changed the way police were forced to behave towards people who look like her. She can be very proud of her dad. Uh, this is a man who survived COVID but couldn't survive cruelty. But this country, if we're going to survive cruelty, we can only do it if we all agree that cruelty is never acceptable, even if it's cruelty against someone who doesn't look like you. Uh, I'm uh, generally not usually hopeful, even though my name is Joy. I tend to be a joyful cynic, as I like to say. Uh, but I'm actually quite optimistic. I think this this young generation, um, they have forced this country to change whether we like it or not. And they have pushed the issue to the point where I don't think it can go back. So, you know, God bless the memory of George Floyd, uh, but also of Breonna Taylor and also of Ahmed Aubrey and also of Trayvon Martin who really started the Black Lives, Matters, Black Lives Matter movement. His, you know, sweet, beautiful face, that, that black and white picture was the beginning of this. Tamir Rice was the beginning of this. Michael Brown was the beginning of this. Eric Garner was the beginning. So many, so many deaths, so much pain and agony for so many families. But, you know, God willing, uh, we will, if we can't bring it to an end, will at least bring this chapter somewhat to a close so that people can agree that we're all truly equal and that we need to be treated that way. It has been an honor to spend time with the three of you today. And I wanna thank you for 
educating us, for enlightening us, for giving us hope, for donating your time and talent. Thank you all so, so much. Thanks for joining us. If you want to know who's going to win the 2020 elections, then don't miss our next town hall that we'll record on July 26th. Legendary political guru David Axelrod and the so-called election whisperer Dr. Rachel Bittekoffer will be joining us. So will Steve Kornacki, who's the master of the big board at MSNBC. We hope you'll be here too. You can learn more and register for our live virtual town hall at conversationsonthegreen.com. The Conversations on the Green podcast is a partnership with Connecticut Public Radio. Our producer is Jay Holt.